Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me this week is Jasmine Smith. I guess I say joining me every week. That's what I usually say. Joining me every, this week is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, you how say are you? as always. I, I switched it up. I never that's, switched it up, but I switched it that's up. That's fine. You can switch it up. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm st- I'm still like not feeling 100 percent. Winter, you know, when we actually go outside, is is brutal. It's brutal. Everybody's getting sick. Brutal out here. Temperatures dropping. I still haven't done my leaves yet. I got a baby to take care of. It's it's rough out here. But you know, we we're persevering. We're doing okay. Uh, and we're gonna talk about things that are going on in in Kentucky today. So Jasmine's gonna actually start us off by talking a little bit about a crisis that's going on in Louisville's jail. Uh, this has gotten a lot of media attention. It's uh, you know Jasmine knows the Louisville jail probably better than most of the people in the media. So she's gonna talk a little bit about that. I, I have like a long list of kind of quick hit type stories. There's four of them. None of them really rose to, uh, you know, full segment stuff, but I, I wanted to at least approach all four of them. And of course, we're going to talk about COVID. So without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us about Louisville's jail crisis. All right. So backing up a little bit, the Louisville Metro Department of Corrections, which is um, the jail downtown on 6th Street, They've been experiencing an overcrowding and understaffing crisis uh, for a while now. So the jail population dipped below 100% for a couple of months during early COVID times, you know, when, when people were released for like nonviolent offenses and things like that. But it's been close to or well over 100% capacity for pretty much all of this year. Um, the population went back up really fast after those first early months of COVID season one Um, from most recent data was from October and they were 200 people over capacity then. And, and just so that, you know, we understand better, like the capacity is based on like the number of beds that they have or what's when they say over a hundred percent capacity, what's capacity based on? Do you know that answer? I don't know if it's number of beds or I would assume it's number of beds most times that I've been over there, there's a lot of people sleeping on the floor. So I assume that that that's what they're using. Um, maybe I can figure that out, though. But couple overcrowding issues with understaffing issues and things are really not great. So over the last few months, several women were hospitalized for suspected overdoses in September Correction staff also held a community meeting in September and said that corrections was a dumpster fire and that on that weekend, they averaged 15 correction staff members for 1,600 people. So that's that's not a lot. (laughs) It's like one per hundred. Actually, a little less than one per (laughs) hundred. Less than that. Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. So they were... They were understaffed, but at that time, a large number were also quarantined due to COVID. And, you know, um, we've talked about before, their vaccination rates have also been low um, among staff. I'm not totally sure, but I would I would guess that the the draw of people who work in corrections is a population who's not likely to get vaccinated because of hesitancy issues, right? Yeah, you know, it's pretty, it's kind of similar to like a, a law, the law enforcement population. Yeah, which that's kind of been uh, an issue with them as well. Yeah. Yes. 
Also in September, a corrections major was suspended for an email um, that he wrote where he like apologized for failing the staff, but also sort of blamed the crisis on officers and they filed like pre-termination paperwork. I don't know exactly what's like, if anything has happened there. Um, But so that's, that's the backdrop (laughs) of what has happened this past week. Right. So um, this past weekend, we learned that there had been three deaths at LMDC in just one week. Um, the most recent was a 48-year-old black woman who was booked on November 30th. And a few details have come out over the past few days. There were supposed to be four guards on duty. There were only two. And one of the two had already worked an overnight shift. Um, and there's also s- supposed to be an officer. I think it's called a tablet officer who monitors for like mental health crisis and like suicide watch and things like that. And there was not one of those on duty at the time. The second death was a 34 year old black woman. And the first death last week was a 59 year old male. And the details that have been shared by the city the last couple of days have been that two of the three of them had significant underlying health conditions, um, which if you're the city, you're trying to absolve yourself from liability. So yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I'm not surprised that that's what, they're saying there's a lot of people who have underlying health issues but not all of them die uh yeah and i mean you know yeah if if you're they're in jail no matter what like you know if they have if they're sick you should take care of them even if they're in jail like you know i don't know that doesn't seem like that seems like information that's useful to have but if you're using it as an, an excuse it's like not a good enough excuse uh, we need more than just like, oh, they just died because they were sick. Like, no, that's that's certainly not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. So super, super tragic. Three deaths in just one week. So the ACLU and other local advocacy groups held a press conference on Monday, you know, to to bring awareness to the deaths and the crisis in the jail, but also calling on the mayor's office and the courts to address the dangerous conditions. Speakers cited the problems with cash bail. Um, They said that they are drafting a letter to the county and Commonwealth's attorneys urging them to not issue cash bail on people who don't pose a risk to the community. (laughs) And so, like, what I'll say about that is we we have done a lot of reforms over the years. In, In 2011, there was a big comprehensive reform legislation passed. And then in 2015, we had a big comprehensive juvenile reform bill passed. And even with all of that, prosecutors and judges will find a reason to say that someone poses a risk to the community so that, you know, they can say, okay, we won't issue cash bail on people who don't pose a risk, but they find a lot of people who they think pose a risk if that makes sense yeah it does and and it i mean it kind of goes to show you i mean when we talk about you know the way that the government is set up you have people who put policies into place and those are like legislators and then you have an executive branch that carries out the laws and no matter what the policies are you have to have people that carry them out the way they were supposed to be or the way that they were intended to be carried out and you have elected judges and you have elected prosecutors um who are doing exactly what you're saying like there is this policy in place that's supposed to say that like these sorts of people are not supposed to receive cash bail and basically they're finding a way to get around it. And the, the solution there is like get better people in those positions. So that's, that seems to me like the, the, the next step to take there. 
Yeah. Um, And they also urge the mayor to instruct the police to issue citations on lower level offenses. And and that's kind of one of those things, too, where there's discretion. You know, I would say misdemeanors or low level offenses, but prosecutors will say, well, this demeanor, this misdemeanor is really serious because it involved an assault. And so, you know, they there's always a way to make things seem dangerous or seem like they pose a risk or find a reason that someone's a flight risk. And so I hope that we do those things, but doesn't always happen that way. The, the past, if the past is any guide to us, it doesn't look likely that that's going to happen. And, and yeah. that, you, like you mentioned, this is an issue with prosecutors asking for things that go beyond probably what they should ask for, given that our jail is at 120% capacity or whatever. And then the judge is like accepting what the prosecutors have to say and then just agreeing with them. That That's how this is this is working out. Yes, I would say most of the time. And, and sometimes even the judges think that they need some harsher treatment or punishment than the prosecutor might. Um, so, I mean, yeah. judges are definitely part of that problem too, I think. Yeah. This story is related, I think, Um So the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed class action status for a lawsuit this week against the jail for unlawfully holding people. Um, It would apply to anyone since February 2016 who was held at least four hours after their serve out of a jail sentence and those who were detained at least 12 hours after being ordered released by a judge after making bond or qualifying for home incarceration. So, So... This is something that has been a major issue since I have been an attorney. So you would think if someone's ordered released or they've served out their sentence, they would get released. But for some reason, it doesn't happen. There are so many errors made. Yeah. And in my job as a public defender, we have high caseloads. We're in court all the time. Um, and then we have to, you know, come back to the office and, and write our motions and do our research and things like that. But what ends up happening is a big part of our job entails like putting out these fires of trying to get people released that should have already been released. And so this is a huge problem. And it looks like there's going to be a class action lawsuit yeah. over this issue. I mean, if it happens as often as it's like you're, you're saying, like that makes sense, right? If there's that many people and this is such a persistent issue, I mean, and it, I, I'm sure you don't know the answer here, but it's, it's, I mean, I don't know, like there's, there's of course like a sinister interpretation that they're like holding people because they don't want to release them. But then also like, it seems like they're just the administration of the jail is in such a bad shape that uh, it's right. just really hard to do all the work that they need to have done and they're understaffed and, and you know, uh, and, just, yeah. Yeah, so they, they will tell you, like, reasons it didn't happen. Like, there was an error on the, the court's release order or something. But um, I think in this WFPL article, it said that that was only the case, like, 7% of the time or something. And so the other reasons have to do with, like, holds that the jail has placed on someone that maybe shouldn't have been placed, um, understaffing of the jail records department. And, and so that's a big issue, like trying to even get a hold of someone to correct the issue. And I mean, I know that I've been part of a meeting where we, where a lot of solutions were proposed to corrections and none 
were implemented. <laughs> Someone asked me this week what courts could do to make things better in the jail. Um, and there's a really obvious answer and it's incarcerate less people. Um, but for someone who wants, you know, some more specific things, this is what I told them. One is fix the issue with jail records. I don't know. You're never able to get a hold of them. It's impossible to figure out the issues of why someone hasn't been released. Sometimes um, there's never like, a specific contact person, you kind of get passed around a lot. I think there needs to be some better streamlined process to fix these issues of holding people over their time to serve. The second, I think we have to stop locking people up and issuing bench warrants for people in family court and civil cases. Um, so something that's been part of my job for a long time is representing people charged with civil contempt for being behind on their child support payment. So civil contempt is not even a criminal offense. There is a criminal offense called flagrant non-support. And so these are people who are, who are behind, but not so much that it's criminal. Um, whether that should be criminal, I think, it, you know, that's an argument for another day. Um, but an immediate thing we can do to lower the jail population is not lock up people for civil offenses. And in those cases, I see so many bench warrants with high bonds issued that it's insane. For, for um, child so support I think that issues? That is, yes. Yeah. And that for something that's not a criminal offense, and that doesn't make any sense because if you're in jail, you're not going to make any money that you can use to then pay child support. Like it doesn't do anything to help solve the problem. Right. And, and a lot of times like these people eventually get out on like home incarceration where they have to have an ankle monitor. Um, but then there's like hoops to jump through because you have to make sure that they have work release so they can make money to make their payments. And but the thing is, like when they miss court because they've moved and they didn't get their summons, then they get a bench warrant with a high bond they can't pay. So they definitely spend time in jail before they might get the opportunity to be released on monitoring or something. And if we could just keep those people out of jail, period, that would be helpful. Um, another thing I think we need to do is like, I think, and, and this isn't all on the court system to create these programs, but I think that we need more treatment places where people can be on court monitoring, because I do understand with maybe some people who have missed court dates a ton in the past or that have a serious addiction, I understand that judges may be reluctant to release them without anyone checking in, monitoring, making sure they're going to come back to court, making sure they're not using. Um, but the number of places that they can go and get like substance abuse treatment or mental health treatment and be on some form of court monitoring is really limited. And, and there's always a lot of logistical hoops to jump through to make it happen. And so I think we need more treatment places that like are willing to partner with the courts to allow people to be on monitoring at their facilities. Next, I think that um, judges need to release more people at arraignment and give people bail credit. So um, earlier in this segment, I mentioned that in 2011, there was a pretty comprehensive criminal legal reform bill passed. And one of the things that bill did, it was House Bill 463. 
it provided for bail credit where you get $100 a day in bail credit as long as you're not a flight risk or a danger. And it's ne- it's rarely ever used because judges will find flight risk or danger in nearly every case. And so I think we need to allow people to have the bail credit that was given to them by the legislature. Yeah. Um, and then... The last thing I would say is allowing people with minor probation violations to be out of custody pending revocation hearings. So another big part of a public defender's job is representing people who have been placed on probation. They pick up a violation and then you get the case for a revocation hearing to revoke their probation. And those people, they usually get brought in the courtroom a high bond gets set and they pass the revocation hearing out six to eight weeks. And sometimes those, those minor, those violations are minor, like something that can be fixed, get them back in touch with their probation officer and work things out. And maybe they didn't have a phone, so they weren't checking in. And so there are so many people with technical violations or minor violations that I think could be out of custody pending those hearings. And so those are just a few things that I think could be immediate fixes to getting the population down. Yeah. I don't, you know, know as much about the corrections staffing side of it. And and so it definitely seems like that needs to be addressed as well. Yeah. Um, I know that they don't make a ton of money. I know that they're offering like double overtime pay right now, but like, it's also not good to have people working like double shifts um, that are charged with like taking care of, of humans. Right. Um, we want, we want people to be alert. Well, well yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, and that, that goes back to what you said. Like one of the people who, you know, was supposed to be watching one of these people who died had just come off of an overnight shift or something. Yeah. Like that. Like, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jasmine, you know, whenever you say like incarcerate fewer people, I mean, to a certain segment of people that immediately like raises a lot of red flags about like, Oh, you're going to let criminals back on the street. You know, there's, People who've shot 10 people and murdered four people and, you know, whatever. They're going to be walking the streets and whatever. And and I think, like, the, the suggestions that you made here are are specifically related to reducing the population in the jail, um, how to fix the jail by having the fewer people in the jail that are, like, small uh, technical things that could go a long way to make sure that, you know, we're, you know, I don't think in this specific instance, you're suggesting that we like let everybody out of the jail, but we make right. sure that- like the, these are all pretrial things, you know, for example, the family court, those are people not even charged with a crime and they're getting locked up yeah um, for and missing a civil court date. And so with the jail um, records issue, it's, it's that- people who are specifically supposed to be out of the jail. Like that is like people who are supposed yes. to be out based in the law and they are still there because of a technical thing that you can't solve yeah this is these are all like this would reduce the jail population to a place where the staff that as it exists in the jail as it exists can function properly you know or at least get closer to that um by making some minor changes that literally don't require any changes in like the law or the policies as they're written just like enforce what's on the books already and and we would get to a better place than we are right now Right. I know that I am, you know, further left on this issue, I guess, than a lot of people. But I think that these are just very, very reasonable things that can be done now. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're totally right. All right. Well, the jail sucks. Uh, That's too bad. Uh, Let's talk about something else that's no good. And that's COVID-19. So, 
Jasmine, it hasn't been a good week for COVID. Uh, nearly all of Kentucky's markers are headed in the wrong direction, even though the recent decline which we had was only partial. It didn't take us all the way back to the low num- numbers we saw in the early summer of 2021. But one, the, if you're looking for like a silver lining here, we aren't really seeing like a breakout in ex- exponential growth like we have in, in several of the other rises that we've seen. It's a much more gradual rise than the ones we've seen in the past. Right now, nearly the entire map is in that red zone, which is more than 25 cases per 100,000 population uh, per county. There are uh, like 13 or so orange counties and I think one yellow county left. However, unlike other times when the map has been red, there are only a few small counties with you know that really high number of 100 cases per 100,000 population. And a lot of the larger counties, you know, Louisville, Lexington, and then, you know, like the other small city counties, um, most of them are between 25 and 60 cases per 100,000 people. So, so they're, you know, considerably lower uh, than, than they have been when, you know, we've really, really been in a bad position. So, you know, it's red, but it's not too red. Uh, that's kind of the way I would put it. In the city of Louisville, there was a pretty bad week for cases last week. There were 2,200 cases, which is nearly double the previous week of 1,300 cases. So that's not very good. However, the decoupling between cases and deaths does continue. Uh, you know, last week was the last week in November. And if you added up all the weeks in November, um, there were 27 total deaths. There were three weeks in October that had more than 27 deaths due to COVID. So in Louisville, the number of deaths is is somewhat lower, despite the fact that cases remain um, at an elevated point and, and are going, were up uh, significantly last week. So Something to keep an eye on, but that's an encouraging trend. Uh, Louisville is, of course, one of the places that has a high, the, one of the highest vaccination rates in, in the state. And the other urban county, Fayette, Lexington, uh, cases have indeed risen quite a bit. They were at about 20 cases per 100,000 at the end of November, so like at the beginning of or about a week ago. And now they're at about 30 cases, so you know a rise of you know 30 or 50% in, in just a week. Um, but deaths uh, in Lexington are not showing the same sort of decoupling. They were, they were much higher per capita in Lexington in November. There were 41 deaths in Fayette County in uh, November. You know, that's more than Louisville, and Louisville's about double the size of Lexington. Um, but there have only been seven deaths so far in December, which that does indicate that there's been a slowing trend at least in the last week. So Louisville's deaths were pretty low all of November Lexington's were high in November, but do look like they're a little bit lower in December. You know, while the trends uh, of deaths in highly vaccinated urban counties has been pretty good, it has not been great in the rest of the state. So the death rate has climbed substantially statewide. Last week included some of the worst days for deaths in Kentucky, including four days in a row with more than 60 deaths. We broke that streak yesterday, which was Tuesday, when we had 59 deaths. But today, I just looked at the numbers, and we had 70 deaths today. So there are a lot of people dying every day of COVID in Kentucky right now, and that's very bad. Hospitalizations have crossed over a thousand. Um, you know, we had been as low as 760 in uh, you know the, the the recent dip, but we and, and we've gone back up. So we went from 760 to, to 1,000. You know, 25 percent increase or so. But we are way off of our our, our our high in the Delta peak, which was 2,600. So we're less than half of where we were when we were really really bad. The increase uh, in hospitalizations seems to be significantly more gradual than the previous Delta rise. We have not gotten to that like big exponential growth, and uh, I hope that we don't get there this time. So uh, we, we will see. 
The vaccination efforts are going about the same as they have. We are up to about 61% of people in Kentucky who have had one shot and 53% who have had two shots. That's great, but the research regarding the new Omicron variant seems to indicate that a third shot is pretty vital to protection from that variant. However, the state itself hasn't released a ton of data regarding th- third shots, but but Louisville does report um, number of third doses received, and the number of third doses is actually significantly higher in Louisville than the number of first and second shots. So more people are actually getting their, their booster or their third shot um, than are getting newly vaccinated in, in Jefferson County. That definitely makes sense to me, because the people that haven't gotten that first or second at this point are... The most hesitant. not going to get it or or their children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. We, we yeah, we we have seen kind of an increase in, in vaccinations in Louisville kind of recently. But yeah, those it is like the, the last of, of the people. Yeah. Yeah. So we will see. And, and you know, there is still guidance that needs to come out with Omicron. And, and we're still trying to figure everything out. Mostly everything's very preliminary. But it is coming directly from Pfizer. Um, I think it just was released yesterday in a preliminary format, mm-hmm. and there wasn't, it hasn't been peer reviewed. It hasn't even been published yet. Um, so there's a lot of work to do there. But I wonder if one of the big policy changes might be that you no longer have to wait six months to get your booster. It may just be like a three week type span, like you have with your your um, you know your first and your second shot. The other option is I know that Pfizer and Moderna both are working on Omicron specific shots so that might be something that's in our future as well but there's a lot like the the rise that we're seeing right now and i think this is something that people may not realize the rise that we're seeing right now is not related to the omicron variant the rise we're seeing Mm -hmm. right now is delta so the delta variant is something that is well controlled with the vaccines that we have and the 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 you know mitigation efforts including masks etc that we have right now like that that we know how to beat back delta we did it once before. It's just coming back because we've gotten a little bit more lax, I think. The Omicron is a problem for the future, and, and we're kind of working out ways that we might fight it once it gets here, which it seems like it might. Another thing that we've seen with Omicron is this is also super preliminary, but there was a significant rise in cases due to Omicron in South Africa, but the number of hospitalizations uh, and the number of ICU beds did not rise uh, commensurate with the rise in cases. So the it that is consistent with uh, the idea that it might be a little bit less you know deadly than Delta or or some of the original variants or some of the original diseases. But it's not sure that that's the case either. But if it is the case, if that turns out to be true, the policy response is going to get like a lot more complicated because you know if somebody tests positive. Do we want to then have, you know, how, how concerned are we going to be? Are we going to shut down schools? Are we going to have more mm-hmm. uh, quarantines if it's not as serious as the original disease? So a lot of, you know, really confusing things that we're going to have go on there. Um, but that again, that's not uh, that's not necessarily a problem for today, uh, even though it is something that we're all thinking about it. In short, right now, COVID is getting worse. We're going to have to live in a world where this is part of reality. I think, uh, you know, COVID is going to get better and get worse as time moves along. And I just kind of feel like COVID's going to be part of our lives, the foreseeable future. And just speaking for myself, you know, I've been kind of working towards getting more comfortable with the efforts I'm making to prevent COVID. Uh, you know, I, those are going to become like more permanent fixtures in my life. And I need to get more comfortable with that. I, you know, as I think about it, I'm probably going to be wearing a mask at places like the grocery store or the movie theater, or the doctor's office, just like for the rest of my life. 
you know, whenever I go to those places, I'm just going to wear a mask because it seems safer and this disease is probably just going to be out there forever. But, you know, my family and I is gonna, are, are going to continue to do things like go out to eat, see vaccinated family members, go to the museum and go to the zoo and go to church and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's just kind of where I think we're at. We're just going to be making some of these efforts and doing some of these things. And we're just going to have to become more comfortable with that being being our life. I do think that there are possibility that big changes could occur. And the biggest unknown, I think, in this world is, or in that world is is the effectiveness of treatments. And it, and it is the case that some of the treatments that are out there that are being tested are pretty big game changers and could potentially like really render COVID to be significantly less deadly or like less of a big deal. Like if you get it, as long as you take care of it, you will be fine. And if that's the case, that's a big, big change for the way that we may behave. But I do kind of feel like enough has happened and enough has happened with this disease that our our behaviors are probably, you know, going to be mostly permanent. And the sooner that we can find the highest level of comfort that we can get with that, I think the better off we're going to be. It's just really tough because I know some people are really struggling. Some people in uh, so some of those vital professions, like people who work in grocery stores, teachers and stuff like that, and, and especially people who work in the healthcare industry who've just been under a super crush for multiple years. Like that's just really, really hard. So, you know, that that's probably tough to hear. But I, I mean, I just I just kind of feel like that's where we are. Any COVID anecdotes for us this week, Jasmine? Um, I've started to have a lot of friends getting Moderna boosters. I was a Pfizer person and the Moderna boosters have knocked them down a little bit. Yeah, I had my Moderna booster and it, yeah, I I don't know if I talked about it on the show. Actually, I think it might have been the week you were gone. But I, yeah, I took a work meeting uh, the day after because I didn't have any side effects when I had my first two shots. And I got about halfway through the meeting and my coworker was like, man, you don't seem like you're doing super well. Maybe you should like <laughs> lay down. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, apparently. So I like laid down and I told Kelsey that I was, you know, I was going to pick up the baby. I was going to lay down for like an hour and get the baby. And I woke up and Kelsey had made dinner and the baby was home, had been home for like an hour. So, you know, I just fell straight to sleep and I didn't even know I had that work meeting. I was informed of it the next day by that same coworker. So just totally lost that. Oh, <laughs> but then the thing is about these boosters uh, and I guess the side effects together, you know, I was having such a rough time. I was feeling bad. And then like 18 hours was up and I was like on the phone with my mom and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not feeling very good. I got this really terrible side effects. And then, like, I, as I'm saying this to her, it went away. Like, it just was, like, that immediately. And I was like, nah, actually, never mind. I feel fine. So, you know, even if the side effects are bad, they're temporary. And the protection is permanent. So, Jasmine, let's get to the Quick Hits Roundup. Uh, I have four stories that I wanted to talk about. The first one is United States Representative Thomas Massey, who represents Kentucky's 4th District and who is among the most right-wing congresspeople in Washington, D.C. He posted a holiday card on social media last week featuring his entire family holding very powerful and dangerous semi-automatic weapons and maybe an automatic weapon. I couldn't really tell what the gun was that he was holding, but that might have been like a fully automatic weapon. So, um, yeah, the, the post included the caption, Merry Christmas, Santa, please bring ammo. 
the online responses were pretty fierce, including John Yarmouth, the congressman from the 3rd District in Louisville, who posted, quote, I promise not everyone in Kentucky is an insensitive asshole, unquote. <laughs> Yarmouth called Massey insensitive because he posted the gun tweet in the wake of the school shooting in Michigan. And Adam Kinzinger, who's a Republican congressman, and Anthony Scaramucci, who's a former communications director for President Trump, they both also went after Thomas Massey, making the criticism bipartisan. Massey responded on a conservative radio show saying he will never delete the tweet. He also responded with, quote, you know, in Ghostbusters, they say don't cross the streams. I crossed guns with family and Christmas, and those are three things that could trigger the leftists. And I didn't realize it would be such an explosive cocktail when you put it together, but it adds up to freedom, unquote. So, Jasmine, uh, you know, Thomas Massey is not a very effective legislator. Like, he doesn't actually do anything in terms of, like, passing legislation in Congress. But he's an incredible troll. Like, he just really gets people Mm -hmm. going. Um, And I think today's Congress really rewards attention-seeking behavior more than the ability to actually legislate. And that's why you get people like Thomas Massey successfully winning term after term. And you see this to Lauren Boebert, who is a similar type of congressman to Thomas Massey out in Colorado, who posted like basically the same thing with her much smaller children holding equally dangerous automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons saying, you know, Massey, we've got your six um, and, and that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it's it is just it's just he's an incredibly gross person. And this is really sad that it's a Kentucky congressperson who's doing this. Uh, you 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 definitely saw this, right? Oh, yeah, I saw it way too many times. Yeah, it was it was really something. Yeah, I, I could go on and on about like the difference between an effective legislator and a, and a one who's able to get people's attention. So um, mm-hmm. he's certainly the latter, and I don't think he's very interested in being the former. All right, next. Kentucky Representative Joe Fisher is running for Supreme Court in northern Kentucky. Representative Fisher is one of the most conservative members of the Kentucky legislature. He sponsored almost all of the anti-abortion Republi- or legislation the Republicans have passed in the past five years, including Kentucky's trigger law, which makes abortion illegal if Roe v. Wade is overturned and the constitutional amendment on the ballot, which would ban abortion uh, next year. So Fisher is going to run against Michelle Keller, who was appointed to the Supreme Court back in 2013 and who won her own term in 2014. The the terms, I think, are eight years on the Supreme Court, I believe. So that would mean this is her first re-election campaign. Keller's from Kenton County and Fisher's from Campbell County. So those are the two northern Kentucky counties, the highest, the you know, the three up there, the three up in northern Kentucky are, of course, the three most populated counties in this district. Uh, but it stretches quite a long way. The sixth Supreme Court district actually pretty closely matches the fourth U.S. congressional district. So if you're familiar with Thomas Massey's House district, it's about the same for the sixth congressional district. It runs from like Oldham, Shelby, and Spencer County in the west. That's like counties that border louisville and it goes all the way along the river through the northern kentucky counties and then all the way east to lewis fleming and bath counties uh in the kind of like northeastern kentucky area on the ohio and not quite to the west virginia border but getting close so that's where the district is Uh, there have been two supreme court cases that we've watched you know i would say pretty closely 
um, over the past couple of election cycles. And, and the first one is, is Whitney Westerfield, who ran as a constitutional conservative and lost to Christopher Nickel, who was a pretty moderate appeals court judge. And that was in the first district in far western Kentucky in 2019. And then last year, we saw Democratic state rep Chris Harris lose to conservative lawyer Bob Conley in the seventh district. And that's far eastern um, uh, Kentucky. Well, it's also worth noting that the incumbent, Justice Wright, was defeated in the primary. So the race became Chris Harris versus Bob Conley, but the incumbent justice actually ran as well and lost. Yeah, he was running and then lost. Yeah, that's a mm-hmm. that's an that's an important point to make as well. Um, you know, it's really hard to say what the trend is. I do feel like Supreme Court cases are are increasing in you know, I think their visibility on Kentucky's ballot over the past few years. I do know that we've certainly talked about them more um, in the past couple years than we have in in years pr- prior. But I, I, you know, and I do know that like those are important races across the country and are becoming increasingly political um, in places like Wisconsin. Uh, but but I don't really know if we can see much of a trend in these two races because, of course, in one like the moderate appeals court judge won. And the other one, you know, I think, you know, uh, Chris Harris was certainly probably more of a political person being ha- having been elected to political office before. But Conley certainly was running as a little bit more of a conservative. I think that one was probably a little bit more personality based with Harris winning most of the counties down in southeast, like southeastern Kentucky, like Pike County and Point South. And Bob Conley is from Ashland winning basically all of northeastern Kentucky. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I do think it's it, it's likely that Joe Fisher is going to benefit from a Republican environment in 2022. But, um, you know, Kentuckian, Kentuckians and the Kentucky electorate's uh, kind of um, attitude towards Supreme Court justice races is, is something that, you know, we need to be watching pretty closely and, and something that I think this race will give us a lot of clarity to. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of love for representative Fisher, but I don't really know much about Michelle killer or if she's a more conservative or more moderate person on the Supreme court. Do you, do you have any clarity on that at all? I would say she is maybe moderate, but very pro law enforcement. Gotcha. Is my read. Yeah. That's not surprising given the, the district. I mean, and, and she was appointed by Steve Bashir and then won a, a, you know, a, a court case or a one a term on her own right. So, you know, also a pretty conservative person as well, likely would be replaced if she was replaced by somebody even more conservative. All right, moving on. The Kentucky Board of Education approved unanimously new regulations about corporal punishment. Corporal punishment is still legal in Kentucky in education. Uh, only the legislature has the ability to abolish it. However, the Kentucky Board of Education is doing all it can to ensure the practice is used in as limited a way as they can possibly make it. So Jason Glass, who's the Kentucky school superintendent, said, quote, I'm on record saying I consider this a barbaric practice, and I'm embarrassed that it exists anywhere in the state of Kentucky, unquote. KBE did manage to fully ban corporal punishment for some groups of vulnerable students, including those in foster care, those who are houseless, and those with documented disabilities. So that's, you know, about as far as they can take an outright ban, um, given, you know, their lack of power that they don't have that the legislature does have. Only a handful of school districts actually still allow the practice. 
and the documented use of corporal punishment has fallen significantly over the past few years, but it's still in use. Um, in 2019, which is the last year that wasn't a pandemic year where we had records, there were 142 uses of the practice. So that's like 142 kids who got beat by their school, like people who work in their schools, which is just crazy to me. Just absolutely insane. So there has been a movement to ban corporal punishment in Kentucky. Led, It's been bipartisan. I think Senator Julie Rocky Adams has been one of the major champions, and she's a Republican from Louisville. The House managed to pass a ban on corporal punishment last year in 2019, but it died in the Senate. But I do know it was kind of on their list of things to accomplish in the last couple of days, and they didn't get to it. I expect the bill likely will pass in a future session. I think it has the votes to pass. But I think it just has to find its place in the priority list for Republicans. Um, and, it, and it might even pass this year. So let's hope so. I mean, it is a barbaric practice. It's totally ridiculous that we allow, you know, people in positions of authority in schools to hurt and like physically hurt children. Um, that's like mm -hmm. ridiculous. But um, it is an, an antiquated uh, practice that used to be a lot more common and uh, as we've become more enlightened, it's been gone most everywhere, and Kentucky's one of the last places it's still practiced. Hopefully not for too much longer. All right, the last quick hit I have before we can get out of here is that earlier this year, the legislature passed several bills stripping the governor of powers, and one of those laws moved a lot of the power that the government holds to appoint members of the state fair board to the agriculture commissioner. The governor sued and won at the Jefferson Circuit Court level. So Judge Mary Shaw wrote in her opinion, quote, while the legislature can transfer appointment powers between constitutional and executive officers, at some point such a transfer becomes unconstitutional when it infringes upon the governor's powers as chief magistrate. HB 518 does just that, unquote. So based on what I've read of the opinion, the, uh, the law that puts the majority of appointments in the hands of someone who is not the governor. And that seems to be the major issue that Judge Shaw had. She said that this prevents the governor from ensuring the laws of the state are carried out. So I don't know. Uh, does that seem like a sound legal argument to you, Jasmine? Yeah, it does. That seems pretty straightforward to me. GOP legislators and Republican appointees from the state fair board, um, they asked Judge Shaw to de delay the implementation of her own opinion saying that the opinion puts the fair strategic planning process in jeopardy. But I don't think that she's done that, and I don't necessarily know if that's on her list of things to do. So, um, yeah, they, there's a, been a loss at the, the circuit court level. I'm sure it will get appealed. I'm sure it will eventually find its way. Yeah, I think this will – yep, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. And and we'll see. I mean, we, we, will, we will see what happens with, with that. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay, well, that is the show for this week. Uh, a lot that we learned about. We are going to have um, more guests coming up soon. One next week for sure. So, uh, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.